Blog Talk Radio. And thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that kind of tackles some difficult topics. And sometimes we have a lot of fun. Sometimes we get pretty serious. And today we are going to tackle a subject that I haven't heard a lot about. Now, maybe that's because I, I live in a rather sheltered environment. I don't know. But I have not heard a lot of people talking about what do people do after they've been incarcerated and they're let out. We hear a lot about recidivism. We hear a lot about um, you know prison populations in general, um, but what happens after that person is? Um, I, I hesitate to say rehabilitated because I don't think our prisons do very much to really rehabilitate. But after that person is returned to society, um, what what happens to that person? Uh, the barriers that they face. The you know I mean I think most of us have heard about. Um, certain criminals not being permitted to vote. Um, we've heard of different uh, uh, restrictions that they have. We certainly know that we have to list it on a job application if we've been in prison. Uh, but what are the, some of the other barriers, and, and who's trying to help these folks so that we don't see that uh, reverting back to criminal behavior simply because that's the only thing available? We're kind of lucky today because we have two speakers with us, two people. Um, Catherine, um, are you there, Catherine Catcher? Yes, I'm here. Okay, Catherine, welcome. Us. And Sonia Sonia Tonneson is here. Welcome, Sonia. Hi, thank you for having us. Okay. Um, they're both with um, Root and Rebound, which is an organization I have to confess I'm not that familiar with. I just kind of ran across it and thought, hmm, this sounds very interesting. And so I thought if I'm interested, probably my listeners are as well. So I invited Catherine and I invited Sonia to join us today to talk about not only the issue of returning uh, prison populations, but also their organization, Root and Rebound. Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to um, uh, help found Root and Rebound? Sure. Well, it's a real treat to be on your show, and um, Sonia and I were thrilled to be asked. Um, we started the organization out of my house at a small kitchen table, so it's really exciting to be here now. And um, yeah, it's amazing it's how powerful treat. those kitchen tables are, isn't it? Exactly, <laughs> it is. Um, so that's yes. you know that's really wonderful, and. Um, uh, the, one of the reasons you haven't heard about us, one of, the, one of the reasons, is that we haven't been around that long. We actually were founded in October of 2013, so it's been almost a year and a oh, half wow. that we've been running. And um, we can talk a little bit more about kind of what we do. But in terms of background, um, I actually, after college, did a lot of work with um, – did all kinds of nonprofit work, but I went to law school because I believed I was really interested in working with women and children and um, survivors of violence. And in my very first semester of law school, I was lucky enough to go to an event put on by a group called the Restorative Justice Committee at the law school. Oh, yeah. In which, um, yeah, so it was a restorative justice group, and um, I hadn't really, I had sort of been in, you know, a little bit sheltered and, uh, you know, as you said, I mean, these aren't really issues that we talk about a lot in, you know, mainstream society. Now they're being discussed more. But um, there were two men who spoke at this event and both of them 
were formerly incarcerated individuals who had been incarcerated and convicted when they were very young, um, late teens, of murder, um, both of them for actually for intimate um, partner violence. Um, and it really, a lot of the issues that they talked about, um, what led them to do those kinds of things, um, what happened to them when they were incarcerated, and, you know, how they got out 25, 30 years later, um, really opened my eyes to the way the system worked. You know, they're both men of color. They grew up in environments that were highly um, abusive with lots of violence and alcohol and mental illness. And um, when I was listening to them speak, I thought a lot about the children, the boys particularly, of um, the women who I had been working with in New York at an organization called Sanctuary for Families, which helps um, women leave violent situations, helps them get orders of protection, helps them get separations and divorces. And um, that sort of started me down a path of thinking more holistically about what happens, you know, to people long before they end up committing a crime and how many different factors come together often. Um, and then when people are inside, um, how little, depending on where they are, and these, these two guys were lucky enough to end up at San Quentin, which is a state prison in California, right in basically across the bridge from San Francisco, across the Golden Gate Bridge. So there's lots of services there, and they were able to get you know, meditation classes and yoga classes and um, do a lot of uh, education and insight work, um, and I was amazed at how wise and insightful these people came off as. Um, and so to make a long story short, that was a very eye-opening experience for me. I'm happy to go more into that. I want to give Sonia a chance to talk too. But um, from there, I got really interested in criminal defense work. I was read a lot about how communities of color were just disproportionately impacted by our criminal justice system. I read Michelle, uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, which really opened my eyes. I participated in the death penalty clinic at Berkeley Law School and worked in Houston, Texas for a summer um, doing death penalty work, which will open anyone's eyes up to our criminal justice system because uh, I think 13 men were executed that summer, and um, the large majority of whom were, were men of color. Um, and all of whom, um, who I spoke with, had grown up in extremely violent and abusive homes. Um, so uh, I then went I went from there and um, worked at the prison law office in Berkeley and did a number of other programs um, and internships that uh, sort of worked on prison conditions and ultimately did some work on parole release and then thought a lot about how, <laughs> to make a long story short, um, Basically, since the 1970s in California, our prison population has grown by 750%, and there was a court order in 2011 um, that mandated that the prisons in California re reduce their population, not because of morality, but because the prisons were at 185% of capacity, and they needed to be brought down to 135% of the capacity, the U.S. Supreme Court said, because there were it was unconstitutional, it was cruel and unusual punishment for people because they were getting such poor medical care. Um, and so what I saw was there's a mass number of people who were coming out, were being ordered to go to the county to be supervised by the counties, who were finally being let out on parole by Governor Brown because for 30 years governors didn't let people out on parole. Um, and so all of a sudden you have all these people coming back to the community. And as an attorney, I thought, well, what do they need and what can I actually bring to the table? And what I saw was a lack of legal services and legal support and legal tools um, for these folks while there were, as you said, 
like a myriad of collateral consequences and barriers um, to reentry, to housing, to employment, to public benefits, to financial aid to get back to school. Um, that really sort of is a second sentence, a second punishment that can be just as bad, if not sometimes worse than the actual incarceration itself. And that is um, sort of the, the drive, the passion behind Root and Rebound and what we do. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, uh, Sonia, how did you get into this? Sure. Well, I think Catherine gave a really, really wonderful introduction um, to our work, and so I'll, I'll just try to maybe add a little bit of of how I came to this work. Um, I've I, I've always been very um, committed and interested in issues of racial justice, and um, before law school, I was actually working in the Philadelphia public school system. Um, with high school students primarily doing curriculum around um, urban food access and nutrition and urban gardening and cooking. And so I was working with high school students in the public school system, and simultaneously I was also doing work uh, as an advocate in um, the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania with people who were survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence and helping that walk them through um, the legal processes that they could consider, and not just those, but all of the different options that were available to them, because it's obviously very scary if you're a person who's seeking help. And so I think there's a big myth um, in this work that um, people who do work with survivors of domestic violence and people who do work um, with people involved in the criminal justice system are in any way in opposition to one another. And I always felt completely the opposite, that these are two sides of the very, very same coin, and sometimes they're actually the same side of the same coin. Um, and so I always saw all of that work, um, you know, my work in the, the public school system, that's actually a lot of where I saw the criminal justice system at its best, so to speak, not really at its best, but at its most active. And these were young people who were already being criminalized for behaviors that I, as a, you know, a young, well-to-do white woman from Wisconsin, never, ever would have been criminalized for those behaviors. There were police officers stationed in those schools. I was never questioned because I think of my race privilege, at least that's you know what I believe. Um, they were predominantly African-American schools, also many African immigrants in those schools that I was working in. And again, I, I saw all of the work that I was doing as um, issues of justice, issues of access, and I think violence is a huge part of that. And, you know, Catherine spoke a lot about, you know, how her work actually coming to law school with women and children was a, a really good lens to, to to better understand all of the injustices in our criminal justice system, as they call it. Okay. Um, so I, I similarly okay. actually came to law school. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I just want to say I, I appreciate yeah. your background. I mean, both yeah. of you sound very dedicated to this this issue. But let's talk about some nitty-gritty. Um, what about recidivism? Um, I mean, uh, do you have a statistic, you know, for whatever that's worth, on recidivism in general? I mean, um, we have all heard, who are not active in this field, that recidivism is very high. You get somebody out mm -hmm. of prison and, you know, chances are, are pretty good that they will return. Is that actually mm -hmm. true? Yeah, it okay. is very true, unfortunately, and that's exactly why we exist. Because one of the reasons, so recidivism is very high, and a statistic I do have in front of me is that according to a 2011 report by the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, which they added to their name, um, but not to their work, just over 65% of those released from California prisons return within three years, 
and 70, so 65% returned within three years, and 73% of the recidivists committed a new crime or violated parole within the first year of their release. So 73% of those 65% um, had an issue in their first year. And I just wanted to back up, um, so I would love to talk about recidivism, but in terms of what we do, just to give people very brief background, so our um, we don't do psychological services. We don't work on mental health issues. Um, there's a lot of other things that need to happen and need to be in the community for recidivism rates to go down. And not just we we try not to just focus on recidivism. We try to focus on like just because someone doesn't recommit a offense or end up inside doesn't mean they're doing well or thriving or even near success or stability. So we also want homelessness rates to go down within this population. We want mental health, mental illness rates to go down and joblessness and sort of just like low productivity and low functioning um, and sort of dysfunctional um, behaviors to go down. Um, and so what we do is we, we so as, as I was seeing, the gap that we saw was that there weren't legal services and legal resources. And, I mean, that stat is very high, but what you'd be shocked at is the number of people who come out, particularly the group of people we've worked with um, tends to be prison-based and more long-term folks, who come out really motivated and, and believing that they're going to have a second chance, that Things are going to go different this time. And so those folks, the people who are kind of want to hit the ground running, they have so few resources and they hit a lot of barriers along the way that can really trip them up and they don't have the resources and the information and the advocate in front of them to get through that um, that barrier. Okay. So that we really see can set them back. So we do direct legal services. We provide community and legal education, and we're publishing a manual, the first of its kind, on um, a roadmap to reentry that goes through nine areas of law in the state of California and how to get through different barriers in, within those areas of law and life. And then we also do policy advocacy work. So that's kind of a background to what we do. Okay, how many employees do you have? We have we have well, it's we're really lucky. We have about we have four to five core staff members at any given time, but then I'd say we have an additional four to five fellows and volunteers that are in our office um pretty regularly, and so our staff is you know kind of small but mighty and we're able to um do a lot. We have a lot of very bright young people that I think are attracted to uh, sort of innovative and creative and, and holistic approach to to these issues. Great. I want to talk about what the barriers are before we start talking about some solutions. Um, sure. But first, I want to throw out our phone number. I, I mentioned off the air that we've had I've had a lot of interest mm -hmm. in this topic, and I want to make sure that we can take callers. Yeah. Uh, so if this is of interest to you, if you have um, some questions or comments for these ladies, mm -hmm. give us a call. 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. And we'll take your calls and uh, incorporate your questions in uh, what we have, what we're, what we're going on with and what we're talking about. So quickly, mm -hmm. Catherine or Sonia, either one, what are some of these barriers? I mean, uh, I, I've heard that some... Uh, I, and I have to be honest, I don't know anybody who's actually, um, mm. well, I shouldn't say I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. I've never been real close with mm -hmm. anybody who's spent time in prison and had to face right. the, the rigors and challenges of getting out and returning to right. to their society, their communities. Um, 
so I'm a little ignorant in this area, and yeah. or probably a lot ignorant in this area. I've heard that some people can't, that if you've been in prison, you can't vote, but I'm not sure that mm-hmm. that's actually true. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What are some of the barriers that, that the, these returning folks have to face? Um, so I'm happy to address that. So there's, I mean, Catherine started to talk, this is Sonia again, started to talk about some of the issues, but there's countless barriers. Um, you know, one of the issues that you mentioned, of course, is, is voting and civic participation. And I think, um, you know, that's obviously a major issue because it's saying who who do we consider part of our society and who do we not? Um, so when someone is coming out and their their right to vote is limited, it's saying you're still not really welcome back. It's a, it's a big, you know, society close to you sign. Um, and then these laws that are being passed without the input of people who are previously incarcerated then go on to affect their lives. So it's a huge issue, and not everyone who comes out of the prisoner jail system can't vote, but many people cannot. Um, on top and it of actually that, I mean, is anyone who's on parole, sorry, just to um, clarify that. So if you're on parole, you cannot vote. Oh, okay. But if you once you you're off parole, you can get your franchise back. Yeah, you're enfranchised again. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a little but more nuanced than that, but. Right. Yeah, it's a little so more. Oh, no problem. It's a little more nuanced than that um, because we have a lot of different types of supervision in California now. Yeah. But it's true, people on state parole, which is people who are coming out of our prison system generally, um, cannot vote. And the the problem with they can vote after they get off parole is some people are on parole right. for a very very long time. Some people are actually on parole for the rest of their life. Um, yeah. So that means they will never vote well, again. Well, and i got to be honest online. with you. If I find myself right. in that situation, probably voting is going to be the last thing on my mind anyway. Right. right. Yes, So exactly. So that's, you know, it's a big issue, but it, it's also very symbolic. But, you know, it come, these kinds of barriers come up in many, many other areas of life in terms of, you know, just very basic access to public benefits. We have a lot of laws that disenfranchise people because, you know, we've decided that certain convictions you are not entitled to public benefits, which if you think about it, regardless of of what you've done in the past, if you've served your time and you've come out, every single person, no matter who you are and what you've been through or what you've done, you need to be able to eat, you need to be able to support your children and your family, you need to have shelter. Um, And without that very basic level of assistance, people can't do that. So we have um, you know, bans on on food stamps for people who are convicted of felonies related to drugs, and a lot of many, many, many other issues. Um, this is also something that really impacts undocumented people who can't access benefits for themselves and only can sometimes access benefits for their children, but the same family has to share that money. Um, and then we get into issues of housing. This one is the one of the biggest and mm-hmm. something we hear from every single person coming out, housing, 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 housing. Um, it doesn't exist, first of all. There's not enough of it. There's not affordable housing. Um, and then when there is housing available, there's so many limitations, barriers, restrictions on people with criminal records that it can become a, just a, impossible to access. And that's one of the reasons we see huge, huge levels of homelessness. I mean, we have for federally assisted housing, we have certain types of convictions that bar you from getting back into it or joining a family. Um, we have very, very strict policies about people staying as guests in certain homes and when they're no longer a guest and you can get your family in trouble with the landlord. There's a lot of ways where we say we don't want, we we aren't going to let people rejoin their families. We're not going to let people even have a place to live. So there's a lot of laws around that. There's also big issues with Um, family law, Um, and this covers a lot of different areas, but people who have been in prison and jail, you know, they still have families, they have children, they have um, 
you know, people with to whom they have responsibilities to. And, you know, all mm-hmm. sorts of issues can come up where their conviction prevents them from reunifying with their family or it restricts them from traveling outside a certain county so they can't even go see their family. Or we've seen situations where a family member of the, quote, victim um, actually wants to reunify with the person coming out of prison or jail, but we put a restriction saying they can't. So it's it's a huge slap in the face of ideals of restorative justice, people who believe that you really can redeem yourself and learn and change and gain insight um, by saying that even someone who is, quote, a family member of the victim, they don't even get to decide for themselves that they want to reunify with that person coming home, um, which is really, to me, one of the most shocking things that I have learned doing this work. But there's also, you know, many issues of getting financial aid to go back to school, a lot of debt that piles up, um, you know, just very basic traffic tickets and fines and fees from a criminal court case can amount while someone's inside. If somebody owed child support and never had it paused or couldn't get it paused, that amounts while they're inside. So people who go in with a few hundred dollars of debt then go into prison, can't make more than a few cents an hour at a job, and that all goes to phone calls to family, come out with zero money to their name, and debt that has now amounted to tens of thousands of dollars and is in collections. And, um, their their wages from their jobs can be garnished. It's very, very, very serious, and we keep people poor for the rest of their life because of their incarceration and because of their their criminal case. Um, and even, you know, down to, to, you know, people talk a lot about expungement, expungement, cleaning your record, clearing your record. Isn't that great? It gives you access to everything. Well, you know, record, you know, remedies that help people fix up their record are great, but they're very, very limited in California. And, you know, for example, if you're going to court to try to um, – to to have any kind of process done, let's say you need to be the guardian of a, a child, that that old criminal court case will still come up even if it's been dismissed. The the court doesn't have to give weight to that. Um, and so and again, you know, expungement of records can sort of help in the private employment context, but not really if you're applying to any kind of government employer. So I mean, there's really just that's just a tiny smattering of the millions of laws actually that that keep people poor, keep people homeless, keep people jobless um, when they come home well, and return home after prison. Well, to play devil's prison. advocate, though, um, you know, I mean, do I want somebody who's been in, who committed a crime serious enough to send them to prison, do I really want them as my coworker? Do I want them as my neighbor? Do I want them as my, my tenant? Um, I mean, I, I'm sure that a lot of these things come from um, some legitimate concerns that people might have. Um, and certainly you can't say, well, this is for everybody, and that's the unfortunate part of it. But I, I can see where somebody might say, well, you know what, we've got lots of kids around here. We don't want uh, uh, somebody who's been in prison for child molestation to live in this neighborhood. Now, I understand sure. that that makes it really difficult, but, you know, I mean, again, to play devil's advocate, doesn't, uh, you know, isn't there some legitimacy to some of these restrictions? So I would say absolutely, and um, I don't think that Sonia or and I or the organization um, are opposed to a lot of what you just said. Um, I myself have a small child, and um, as a parent and as a community member, um, I uh, and as a human being, I am a proponent of public safety. Um, I think that 
our feeling is that exactly as you were sort of just drawing out, um, what a lot of advocates in this area push for is for a test, some sort of nexus, a, a nexus test to be done where we actually analyze whether the discrimination against this individual makes sense given the context. So if a person with a child molestation record is applying for a job at a kindergarten, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I think that there should be every reason to not <laughs> hire that individual. But if a person with sure. a and and you know with but a person with a, a 30 year old a, you know a conviction that happened 30 years ago for um let's say something really terrible a gang related shooting um and this guy comes out he's 65 years old he's been inside he can show all the re- rehabilitation or or women by the way because we work with a lot of women and women you know are convicted of crimes commit crimes drug crimes prostitution um there's all kinds of behavior that you know is criminalized at high rates that affect women and women of color but um you know let's say it's it's you know a uh, uh, a serious crime, um, but there's, there's, you know, we, we believe people can change. We believe that there should be space in our society for that person to come back if they've served their time. We don't believe in continued punishment because I also, as a public safety, you know, advocate, I don't believe that we should create a situation where people create are, are, are then sort of in a position where they have to commit more crime, right? Where then that person who yeah. can, who has no space in society is going to, um, you know, be in a position where they have to go back to old behaviors or they give up and they start using substances, which is a huge issue for this population. And then, you know, the use of substances can can lead to all kinds of really negative behaviors. So I absolutely think that that's, it's sort of like a misunderstanding and I totally get it as to like, you know, the people who do this work and what we're advocating for. You know, I, I believe there are people personally, you know, and I'm not speaking for anyone myself, I believe there are people who should be institutionalized in some capacity. I'm not, I you know, I believe there are people who are not safe, who are not, you know, who shouldn't be walking around the street. There are, you know, people who are too mentally ill um, and too, you know, <laughs> it, it's not safe for us. But there are absolutely, and then I believe there are a lot of people who can come out and sort of, if we had a system where we could just step back, it's so broken, but if we could step back and think, well, let's say someone is a sex offender and they are coming out. So is there a space for them and what is the safe space for them? Let's say someone comes out with this type of record. Is there a space for them and how do we make space for them? So, you know, it's, it's so individualized, everyone's case, everyone's, you know, histories. And um, I sure. just think the the, 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 the the sort of complete bans in various areas, it doesn't, it's not, it, does, it doesn't look at the individual and it doesn't make space for that person to say, this is actually my situation. So a lot of advocates, what they push for, for example, um, the Equal Opportunity, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, um, they, for example, they have, there's a suggestion that when um, people apply for employment, that uh, there should be a nexus test that's done, so that there's just not discrimination based on you have a record, so no, we're not going to hire you, but you should look at the recentness of the conviction, the relatedness of that crime to the job, um, and you know the, the rehabilitation that that person has. Um, has done, and among a few other factors, so that we actually should think about this stuff um, in a more holistic way. Okay, which sounds very ideal, but who gets to choose? You know, who who gets to make those decisions? And, um, you know, mistakes are made, 
right? Um, I mean, all the time we have people who are uh, sent, who are designated the criminally insane, who then go through some sort of rehabilitation and are released from uh, mental institutions. But in fact, they have not been rehabilitated. As soon as they stop taking their meds or whatever, then they're back to where they started. So, who gets to make the decisions? Uh, I think would be a, you know, for these nexus tests, um, would be a huge consideration because not every professional um, gets it, I'm sure. Um, so that obviously would be a problem for somebody who's who's looking at alternative um, methods, such as the, the test that you're talking about. Um, okay, so I would just let's oh, this, I would just add to that though that the fact that it's difficult shouldn't justify. Um, massive discrimination in our society and and I think you know part of part of Good the point. reason why this work is so important is that you know pe- people aren't in the situation they're in in a vacuum and there's a lot of um there's a lot of life circumstances there's a lot of poverty there's lack of resources support you know food deserts toxins in the environment there's many many things um that lead people to certain places in their life and um, I think, you know, just the, our whole society, especially in the wake of, you know, the, the policing issues and Ferguson and Eric Garner's case is starting to wake up to the reality that there are so many other circumstances. There's issues around race and poverty that play into this. And, and to be blind to those things when you have someone applying to a job, um, for example, that example you gave with a criminal record and say, well, it's easier for me to screen all of these applicants out than to think about all the other stuff that actually what a criminal record really means. Um, and again, if, if, you know, if you're someone who very fundamentally, which we are, believes in, you know, restorative justice and the fact that people can change and grow with support, with services, with support, and um, by, you know, believing in them as opposed to stigmatizing them, I think, you know, I think our our society, we're not, we're not, so behind in times that we can't figure out ways to do this. We can definitely figure out ways to individually assess a person and and to ensure that everyone is safe because, you know, of course that's extremely important, but it's also important to, to consider that we're actually a lot less safe with these flat-out bans and, again, keeping people poor and keeping people down. We're actually making it a much, much less safe situation for everybody. Good point. Good point. Okay, let's talk on a more uh, – oh, and again, I want to give our phone number, 646-378-0430, 646-378-0430. Now, in the field of domestic violence, um, we, we see a lot of people who on both sides, you know, women as well as uh, um, men who are incarcerated because of domestic violence issues. Mm-hmm. What is the likelihood that those people return to uh, their communities and become functional individuals? Do you know? Um, so in terms of people who are in, you know, coming in with trauma or who've committed violence themselves or both, is that Excuse sort me, of... I just sneezed, so... Oh, yeah. Um, was your... Are, are you... Um, so in terms of people who what I, mean, I guess what I would say to yeah. talk a little bit you know about domestic violence because I you know, have the impression and again I'm not knowledgeable about this mm-hmm. but I have the impression that a lot of incarcerated people are incarcerated because of domestic violence issues either yeah fatalities or uh mm-hmm. am I wrong mm-hmm. on that I mean maybe I'm just making an assumption that's not really valid No not at all I think um 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many ways that I think domestic violence is connected to, you know, our prison system and our criminal justice system. And, you know, in some ways it sort of can be the root, the beginning of of everything for a lot of people. Um, You know, there are people who are inside who are, um, who've suffered from a lot of violence in their lives and then have, um, there are people inside who have perpetrated a lot of violence. And then there are many people who are both, right? And, um, you know, that's what we see a lot. Um, You see people who have um, grown up in environments with, um, high amounts of, of violence and um, alcohol abuse and dysfunction, and then they sort of uh, create that in their homes. Um, and so in some ways, like Sonia was saying, the system that sort of keeps people down and out also, I think, in some ways continues to um, create and sort of passively allow for a lot of um, a lot of violence in our in our community um, and in our society. I mean, I'll never forget when I was doing death penalty work, um, one of the cases we were working on, where a person had killed someone in their family. Um, It was an African-American male in the South, and we did a family history just to understand and show the court um, to provide mitigating evidence, which means you show the court you're trying to ask for life without the possibility of parole rather than execution. And um, we sort of looked through this family history, and it goes back all the way to slavery, which um, Michelle Alexander writes about in her book. But, um, you know, that's, you know, the, the... Slavery created a lot of dysfunctional behaviors in the African-American community um, as a way to deal with the fact that they were literally in shackles and um, unable to uh, have any kind of liberty and um, self-determination. And so these families, you know, that is that is the root cause of a lot of destructive behavior in certain families. And so this this family that had, um, you know, been enslaved, you see in the family going down, you know, five generations, alcoholism, abuse, mental illness, alcohol abuse, mental illness, alcohol abuse, mental illness. And you just, and then it comes down to the man who committed the crime and when he was a young guy and you just think, is there any other would there be any other way? Is there any other pattern for this person? So in some ways it starts before, in many ways it starts even before incarceration. But what I will say is that when someone is inside, um, I just feel like there's a huge dearth, a huge lack of services and support programs for people who are incarcerated. And this goes beyond what we do in legal services, but it impacts us because when people come out and they've been through, like I was talking about San Quentin, San Quentin is um, very, you know, in some ways the the men there, and I'm not saying they're fortunate to be incarcerated, but they're fortunate to be incarcerated close enough to San Francisco where there are like 54 programs run by community members as volunteers that teaches, you know, all kinds of um, rehabilitative skills. But the program, the CDCR, which calls itself, you know, as I said, they added rehabilitation to their name. I think it was back around 2005, but they really didn't change what they do. It's a very punitive approach and it sort of locked them up, throw away the key. But the environment it's it's it can be very violent in and of itself prison women and men's prison and then um there can be you know a lot of the programming really relies on volunteers from the community putting their resources and their time into programs that the state should be funding and the county should be funding in their jails um you know th- that's part of you know how I feel even about our work you know we look at how many nonprofits are in the community doing reentry on the outside i mean this is work that our you know if we really believe that um, there should be a rehabilitative approach to what happens when people are incarcerated. Where we're, the state is, and and across the United States, states are not 
for the most part, doing this work. You see one-off projects here and there, and um, like Sonia said, I think people are waking up to, you know, why people get inside, the policing, the prosecuting, and um, I hope we can talk more about what happens inside. But um, so there's a lot of trauma that people, you know, come in with, and it's just not, there's there's no space to really get better and to heal. And I myself worked um, on a project uh, at Legal Services for Prisoners with Children, which is in San Francisco, and they have a project, I think it's still running, called the Habeas Project, and that worked solely with women who had killed their um, batterers and were incarcerated um, for long, long periods of time, Um, you know, 25, 30 years life sentences for many um, for committing that crime. And again, there isn't an individualistic or holistic approach um, to looking at that crime when you're in court. And then they come into prison and, you know, you're locked up in a place that's, there's a lot of male guards. You have all kinds of violent, you know, trauma from the violence you've experienced. There's all kinds of trauma that, have, you know, you're strip searched. There's male guards walking around. I mean, you experience this, these kinds of traumas over and over again. It was shocking to me to visit a women's prison and to see um, kind of just how how insensitive some of the ways that we've just set up these systems. And then, yeah, you know, the, the lack of programming inside um, – and 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 larger in our criminal justice system, the lack of understanding that um, you know these are human beings. Like yes, they've committed crimes, and yes, it's atrocious on paper, but they're human beings. There's reasons. There are reasons for these sure. behaviors, and and um, and and yeah. Do we believe that um, that that there's a chance um, that they're that they can come back and. Um, Will, will we look at them as individuals? So, um, abs- I mean, I think what you do is so important, and I really want to honor that. And, and um, you know, I think looking at that nexus of, like, our incarceration state and domestic violence issues is so important. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the actual getting out of prison, okay? Mm-hmm. A person, um, there's two ways to get out of prison. One is they let you out early and put you on parole, right? Mm-hmm where they let you out early and say, for example, good behavior, whatever, and, and so they say, well, you were sentenced to 20 years, but we're going to let you out after 10 because you've followed all the rules and done what you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But we will keep our eyes on you. We will put you on probation for 10 years or whatever. And then there's another way, which is you've served your 20 years, and they say, thank you very much. Here's the door. What does that person do? And I also, I know, this is such a complex issue, um, and I, I know that it also makes a difference. I mean, if I've served a year in prison or two years in prison, that's got to be a lot different from serving 25 years in prison and then mm. being released. Mm-hmm. So what does the actual prisoner do um, walking out the door? Um, where Where do they go? You know, I mean, say, especially if you've had a long-term incarceration, maybe your family's gone. You know, I mean, maybe you went in as a young man and you had, didn't have a family and your your family was your parents and um, your siblings, and they've actually passed away now because it's 25 mm-hmm. years later. Where do you go? Are there halfway houses? Are there are there steps you can take to you know go back into um, the the community? And how do you choose your community? Um, if there are no community ties, how do you choose where you're going to go and where you're going to live? Mm-hmm. Um, lots of questions there, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm curious how how does one do that? Well, they're really good questions, Heather, and um, I think you hit. 
the nail on the head with a lot of different points about how difficult it actually is. I mean, first of all, to get out of prison, you know, quote, early to get out on parole is a very, very difficult process um, in California, but in many states across the country. And people might go, you know, before what's called the Board of Parole Hearings, five, 10, 15 times before they're actually released. Um, we, we make it very, very difficult for people to actually get out of prison. And then when someone is getting out of prison, there's very little. Um, it's exactly what you said. You know, some people don't have connections anymore. Um, they may have family that passed away, family they don't know how to locate anymore. I mean, 15, 20 years in prison is a long time. It's easy. It's, you know, likely you're going to be losing touch with a lot of people. Um, it's very, very difficult. And um, we give people, I would say, really no resources as they walk out the gate. You know, you are entitled to 200 bucks and you're put on a bus and said, you know, find your parole officer. People who ha are completely unfamiliar with the public transit system, um, the world as it exists in 2015, um, how how to just navigate life on the outside, and you're, you're wearing either maybe some state-issued clothing or some really crappy stuff that they kept from many, many years ago that you wore walking in. And it's just a you know a very degrading experience um, and a very scary experience. We actually work w um, with a really amazing person who's a formerly incarcerated um, man himself and is a great advocate in this work. And you know he said the society has been trained to be afraid of quote these people of you know quote criminals, but actually when someone is coming out of prison, they're afraid of the world. They're very terrified. They're very vulnerable. Um, so it's actually the opposite situation that you might expect in most cases. And in terms of where people go, it completely it completely depends. But a lot of people end up homeless. A lot of people end up in um, substance abuse housing when it's not appropriate for them, but it was the only place they could actually get a bed. People end up in emergency shelters, um, staying on couches and floors of family members' homes if they have family. Uh, you know, oftentimes people do not um, as you mentioned, choose where they get to go. Sometimes people have some say in developing a plan on where they might go. But again, that's that's all about availability. And as, as I mentioned with housing, it really doesn't exist. So there's very, very little choice in the matter. Um, and also there are certain places where a person may not be allowed to go back to. Um, uh, and, and so there's all these different issues, and it really depends on the individual. But generally speaking, you can you can um, see that most people don't have a place to go or don't have a stable place to go. And a lot of people end up homeless very quickly. And a lot of people end up, you know, going back again, like Catherine was saying, that we sort of force people into um, behaviors and lives where crime is the only way to sustain themselves. You know, drug sales or certain illegal activity is the only way to actually get any money and to, to be able to live. Um, so it's it's a really, really sad situation. You know, on the upside, again, well, I the, think... Yeah. Is is there a sociological? I mean, is there a, a psychological reason for for reoffending and going back to prison? Um, you see this, I guess, in cheesy television shows or something, but where the person is just overwhelmed and can't figure out how to um, recreate a life on the outside, and so they do something to offend so that they go back into a, an environment where they are at least familiar. Is yeah, that I mean, actual? I think that 
that's a that's a I mean it's obviously a very very complicated question like why do people reoffend and like I wouldn't even pretend to be someone who could answer that question it's so complicated mm-hmm. and there's so many different theories as to that but that particular situation that <laughs> that individual that reoffends to go back in is absolutely real we've heard that story a number of times um actually it's absolutely not everyone like I said it's so individualized but um there are people who feel like the world is so scary and there's just no place for them in it. And, you know, especially as you were saying, the the men and women um, who are getting out now who are called lifers in California, they've been in for, you know, they were sentenced to, you know, five to life, ten to life, but they could, you know, that allows them to be in for life. So a lot of them were in for 30, 40 years. And, um, you know, that's, that's even though they, they might not want to be there, that prison is all they know is home and the community and their friends and their family are, are their fellow prisoners. Um, and so it's um, absolutely true that people sometimes at least feel like, you know what, I just want to give up and I just want to go back. I want I know, and even if they're not going to commit a crime, like, well, maybe I'll just break a parole condition, you know, you know, call this person or make contact with this person and they'll just send me back because I can't handle this. And I'm sure that, that, that at least that thought goes through a lot of people's heads. And then, you know, beyond that, in terms of why people reoffend, you know, um, what I thought was really interesting, a statistic I think is really fascinating and um, um, I think says a lot is that, you know, when we when we talk about recidivism, um, it's important to note that it's really not the same for the type of crime um, that you're talking about. So people who commit, you know, low-level offenses have high, higher, much higher levels of recidivism. I said there's 65% of people go back within three years. But when you talk about lifers, people who've been in for life, who've actually committed the more what we call, you know, heinous and egregious crimes, their recidivism rate is below 1%. So... The oh, wow. chances yeah. of someone, well, yeah, actually, I, I read somewhere, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know if this is true or not, but yeah. I read somewhere that murderers are the least likely to reoffend. Yes, exactly, um, because, um, and that's what, you know, that's when I going back to, you know, full circle to the beginning of the conversation. That was one of those eye-opening moments I had when I was ta- listening to these two men when I was, you know, 25 years old, listening to these two men talk about, you know, who they were 25 years after incarceration and had committed these, you know, horrible offenses that we as a society have, you know, it's the worst thing you can do. And um, and yet, you know, from the way they were speaking and um, having gotten to know them over the years, it's just like there's no way you can conceive that this person would ever do something like that again. But when you meet the young, you know, person who's kind of, you know, in and out of drug addiction and is, you know, kind of committing low-level offenses, that person actually has a much higher likelihood of recommitting um, that kind of offense. So, um, you know, it's and so that's why I say, like, it's not only just, like, the lack of recidivism that we want to push for, because for a lot of people, elderly people who are coming out and people who have been in a long time, a lot of women who are coming out, it's not that they're going to reoffend um, necessarily, but it's just that they're not going to they're not going to have stability and security and safety, and, um, and that is a problem in and of itself. Um, but, but um, yeah, these are, I mean, these questions are, are so grateful to have the space to have these questions being asked. And I think, like, you know, there's just so many people who can bring different lenses, criminologists, sociologists, um, you know, psychologists, to why people do um, what they do. But what I've what I've learned and what I've been humbled by is that every person is so individual and so different, and reentry looks so different for each, each person. Um, 
Yeah. Well, I'm but sure we a lot of it depends on yeah. your resources. Uh, you know, I mean, if you're yes. fortunate enough to have yes. family that has stuck by you or you have, exactly. you know, some financial exactly. resources, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure that makes all the difference in the world. Okay, let's say we've gotten out of prison. We've been released. We've been given the, the crappy clothes and we've been put on the bus and our $200. Where, do our, where are our options? Well, if we're lucky, we have family we can go to, right? Right. If you're lucky. Okay. Mm-hmm. If we're not mm-hmm. lucky, then we go home. We we are homeless. We we pack it along on the street. But what is there in between? Are there halfway houses? Are there um, uh, recovery uh, transitional housing? Uh, you know what is what are the resources out there, and how does one find it? I'm I'm thinking specifically of uh, a woman who emailed me saying that her daughter was going to be getting out of prison, and what do they do? You know what yeah. what do they do? Um, so what can you be real specific, or at least as specific as you're able to, sure. and yeah. give me some ideas of what I can tell folks if they're facing that sure. situation? Okay. Yeah. So where so do we? Where do they? Yeah. There are transitional homes. There are halfway homes, and they're not perfect. Um, we could spend an entire hour talking about you know the issues in that field. Um, and what I would say is actually a lot of people when they get out are mandated, especially life first people who've been in a long time and are coming out on parole. They must. If in order to get out, in order for the parole board to grant their release, they must list a facility with a bed that's going to take them. The you know the parole board will not allow them to leave if they don't say, I'm going to be in this place. And a lot of people aren't allowed to live with family, even if they mm-hmm. have family. It's absolutely, mm-hmm. they must be in a transitional facility. So there are a lot of transitional facilities um, you know, not enough, but there are definitely a, a large number of them. There's limitations around, you know, most of them are focused on substance abuse, and a lot of the people that we know who go into them don't need substance abuse, you know, help. Um, there's a lot of issues around, you know, like the mandated programming, and there's blockout periods. But I would tell someone who has that specific question is, first, look at where that person is allowed to live. Like Sonia said, a lot of people can't go back to the community where the crime was committed or be near in the same community as um, victims of, uh, of, sorry, family members of a victim. Um, so you want to be careful about, and that person can ask, you know, their corrections counselor, someone at the prison who knows about, you know, their release and, and if there's going to be any restrictions on where they can live. Um, and then I would say, you know, just to start doing internet searches, if there's, you know, look at the areas where you want that person to come back to. Um, like I said, likely if that person's been incarcerated, there's, there's a chance that, um, that they won't be allowed to live with a family member. And so, again, the person who's incarcerated will want to check with, if it's it's, uh, the parole division, if someone's in jail, they're going to want to check with the probation division. They're going to want to understand what restrictions are going to be around them. Um, Maybe they will be allowed to live with a family member, and then that family member will have to write a letter to the parole board or to whoever, you know, is is supervising that individual and say, I'm here, these are the resources. Often you have to say, like, we have a job lined up for this person. You You want to basically write all the support letters you can um, and then um, if if you're not allowed to go back and live with family or you're not allowed to be in an area where you have family, then um, the people on the outside can do a huge amount to use the Internet and do searches of, you know, just look up, you know, halfway house, substance abuse treatment facilities in the area, and you have to call them and you actually have to say, we have someone coming out on March 15th, will you have a bed for that person? Um, it's, you know, women, women's groups are, women's, or, you know, housing organizations are very different than men, so you want to be very specific about, you know, gender, age, 
they'll ask about, you know, any the, the history of the person, and you want to get a letter from a halfway house saying we have a bed for this person, they can come here, and that's what you end up, if it's a parole board, that's what you need to present to the parole board to show them that there's actually going to be a place because they can't just go to the street. They might end up on the street later, and that's sort of what we were speaking to. But when they first come out, a lot of people are mandated um, to be in these kinds of facilities. So in terms of very sure. concrete steps, is step one is sort of figuring out the restrictions, and then step two is doing the research, and then step three is getting letters of support to show that this is going to be available and it will definitely be available and it's good to put that language in as well just you know they'll be available on March 15th or should that person get out later because that stuff happens you know this bed will be available to them and um, and and that would be very helpful to that incarcerated individual okay all right so we've got to do some homework who pays for these these places Depends. I'm laughing because it depends. Um, you know, sometimes it is it's um government money, sometimes it's public benefits money. Um there's a very, very, very small amount of at the county level what's called in Northern California general assistance and in Southern California general relief and this is county based public benefits to help people who can't get any other benefits, which oftentimes is the issue with this population because their conviction has barred them from getting the more traditional state public benefits. But it really depends, and sometimes, you know, it might be a family support or a partner or a spouse or someone who's helping, you know, foot the bill or, um, you know, it it can really depend. But that's actually one of the big problems is that people – um, don't have have the money to actually to pay for certain things. But usually, so when even if they first get the bed out, in the facility, right. they're there for right. a month and they then they can't afford the it funding. anymore, and then they take off right. and go live under the right. bypass. Okay, um, yeah. I'm trying to hurry you along here because I'm looking at our clock and I'm going, oh my golly! Oh. What about <laughs> you know you are based in California, and I'm sure you have your hands full doing what you're doing down there. Um, but what about people in other areas? Uh, where where do they go? What are is there some sort sort of uh, um, uh, directory of organizations that can be helpful or, um, uh, you know, where does one start? Okay, I've got my sister's coming out of prison next month. Um, She can't live here because she uh, uh, abused my daughter, so she can't live here. Um, I do my homework. I I find some place for her or I can't Mm -hmm. find some place for her. Where do I go? Is, Is there some sort of an organization like yours in other places? Well, um, yeah, no, that's a great question. And it, again, I mean, I hate, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but it's so individualized and obviously really depends on the state. And um, one of our goals eventually is to expand to other states where there are high numbers of people coming out and low resources. And um, that isn't hard to find. So there's a lot of states where we could expand. Um, So in terms of legal resources, I would um, recommend a few places. One is you could always go to the local public defender's office in your county, Mm -hmm. and um, those people, obviously public defenders work with people before they're incarcerated um, and um, try to advocate for – you know, zealously advocate for indigent clients, but they might be very aware of um, any kind of reentry resources, specifically reentry legal resources. Um, another organization to look at is your local bar association. Um, they will have a list of kind of the legal aid organizations in your area that could help with issues like getting signed someone an ID, getting them signed up for. Um, all public benefits, um, medical care, um, and um, would also, uh, you know, be able to help with maybe some social so- social service issues. Um, and then 
you know, probation and parole departments can depend. I mean, the, the sort of politics of that county and the politics of that state really um, dictate kind of how helpful those departments are going to be. Some parole and probation officers are absolutely wonderful and see themselves as integral to the rehabilitation and reintegration of the person. So that person could be a wonderful advocate or could be someone who is, you know, makes it very difficult. Um, but to the extent that you can go to that person or a supervisor in their office and say, you know, my, my family member is getting out, they're going to be in this county, what, you know, can we talk about what kind of mental health services there are here? Or what kind of, you know, she needs to get on um, general assistance. You know, how do we do that? They should at least, even if they don't do that in-house, they should be aware of those resources. And um, then again, yeah, you know, you know, looking at the organizations, the Goodwill, the, you know, all the groups, legal aid groups that you might know of in your area, asking friends and family where they've gone for support, um, you know, I would say don't give up. Um, if if people have questions, um, we they can always call our office. I'm, I do speak to people in other states um, that have these questions, and um, our website is uh, rootandrebound.org. Um, our phone number is five one zero two seven nine four six six two, and we will we try to get back to people within a week um, and do try to help them find resources. Okay, that's terrific. Give the phone number mm-hmm. again, please. Sure. It is 510-279-4662. And you can also Great. email us. And your our, website? Our email, our email is info, I-N-F-O, at rootandrebound.org, so people could email us questions as well. And it's root ampersand, that little and, uh, curly and oh, spelled sign, out, actually. not and. That's but for the oh, it's email, spelled it's spelled out? out. So info at root, <laughs> A-N-D, rebound.org. They won't let you okay, use that little terrific. symbol in your email address. <laughs> yeah, I always, I always, I'm so proud of myself that I always remember the name of that symbol. It's an ampersand, yay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> something that I know. Let's write it down. Um, terrific. But I, I would just and add one more thing. At, oh, I just wanted sure. to add one more thing that, you know, there are a huge number of barriers, but there are also a ton of people in this in our society and in this world with criminal records, and you can do it. You you know, don't, like Catherine said, don't give up. You know, word of mouth is powerful. Ask for help. Seek the resources. You know, see if there's reentry councils in your, your county or in your state that might be able to connect you to resources. And there are people in our world who are thriving after incarceration who are advocates and um, in position, executive positions and all all types of different you know, lives that are very meaningful. And, and so we really believe that it's possible and just encourage people to, to not give up and, and keep finding the resources Wonderful. And, and do what you have to do. Yeah. Wonderful. And I have a real quick question. <laughs> We're, I mean, it's not a quick question, but you're going to have to answer it quickly. What about emotional support for the person that's there helping? Uh, are there helping. organizations? Um, yeah, there's actually a wonderful group um, that, well, just started in California. It's called the SE Justice Project, um, E-S-S-I-E. It's um, actually focused on helping women who have incarcerated loved ones and helping support them through that process and through reentry. Um, also, there are groups that focus on, you know, not just the person who's incarcerated, but um, their family. So there's a wonderful group called All of Us or None, and they do a lot of work um, to empower people, their 
formerly incarcerated people who started this organization. It's made up of formerly incarcerated people, and they don't just support the person, the individual who's coming out, but they also support the family. And um, I think there are groups like that that are growing around the country, so I would look for groups like that in this area. There are groups that are, you know, um, you know, uh, coalitions that are going to support your needs, listen to your voice, and those are growing across the country. So those are some that come to mind, but absolutely um, look those up, call them, and see what there is in your area. Okay, great. And people can can learn more uh, by going to your website or by giving you Mm -hmm. a call or emailing. So I'm sure you have those resources available. I I wish that there was a a local organization everywhere for people who are Mm -hmm. facing this problem. You know, I usually the, the sh- I feel like we could just keep going for another hour, but unfortunately we don't have that time. What I try to do each week is to end our shows with a quote, and I have one today from Nelson Mandela. It is said that no one truly knows a nation until one has been inside its jails. A nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. Join us next week. We're going to be talking about immigration and uh, domestic violence, lots of of pertinent information there. And uh, it's just been uh, so exciting to have you and uh, Catherine and Sonia on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us, and thank you, listeners. And join us next week. Three women, three ways. If you missed our show or parts of it, go to the website, uh, blogtalkradio.com slash three women, three ways, and you can listen to it in archive. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.